Just a little bit of uh, context for the night. Um, gives me great pleasure to welcome political writer and editor of American Socialist magazine, Jacobin, uh, Bhaskar Sankara, here to Foils tonight. Together with tonight's chair, journalist and author of Lean Out, Dawn Foster, Bhaskar will be discussing the re-emergence of socialism as a genuine political alternative for the 21st century through the prism of some of the key issues that affect our lives daily and exploring the realistic and attainable idea of social and economic equality. Please give them a warm round of applause. Thank you all for coming. Wow. That was... It's very kind of you all to join us. <laughs> uh, we've had an introduction, so I'm not going to continue introducing us all. Um, so we'll start with a short discussion between me and Bosca, and then we'll open it up to the floor, which will be very exciting. Um, so first and foremost, the Socialist Manifesto. How, when did you first get the idea to write the book, and how did it come about? So I became a socialist when I was way too young to be making these sorts of lifelong decisions. I was like 13 or 14, I'm 29 now, so it isn't just all of my adult life, it was now a clean majority of my, uh, my life. And in the US especially, being a socialist was this obscure, kind of bizarre thing to be. And my initial thinking throughout all these years was that you know, these ideas are so compelling. If the idea of a world without exploitation, without oppression, is so compelling to me and to a handful of my friends, you know, 5,000 people in DSA in 2007 when I joined out of a country of like 320 million people at the time, uh, why isn't it more comprehensible and compelling to other people? So a lot of what I wanted to do was to make it comprehensible. So for the actual book, it was just kind of ideas that had been gestating and I was approached to write a book, and I agreed to do it, partially to be honest, because I didn't have any money. So I figured out a way to like survive in New York City off 35, 40 grand a year, but I had zero savings and zero whatever. So I was like, oh, if a publisher is gonna give me some money to write a book, I should do it. Uh, then I sat on the contract for a year without writing a word. Uh, then the, con the deadline was coming, and I wrote the book so I didn't have to give back the advance. Um, but hopefully the end product is good. Someone has commented that the pacing is off. I'm like, yes, because I had to hit the deadline because I have no money, I had to give back the advance. So what year did you write the book in two weeks? Uh, in uh, between February and May of 2018, so not too long ago. Uh, though, you know, I updated little bits and bits and pieces, but the main thing was there was this tremendous surge around Bernie Sanders, there was all these people who were identifying as socialists for the first time, but for me, becoming a socialist over the course of 10, 15 years, I had to piece together little bits and pieces from 120 books and articles, and I had to create and synthesize my own politics. Uh, I don't want this to be the Bible for people who are socialists, but I want it to be like, here's what I came up with from all these different articles. Here's an easier starting point. And if you want to explore different parts of the left tradition, like look in the footnotes and kind of go from, uh, go from there. But it's less so in the UK, though, compared to other countries, it's still pretty significant that people join the lefts in like ones and twos. Um, and they're, they're not, they're politicized kind of randomly. And it's often like, People used to join, become socialists because their mothers and fathers were socialists and they're from this tradition and they're from this sector of the working class where, oh, this union that I'm a part of has traditionally been aligned with the CPB and you know, whatever, whatever else. This used to be like, the way people are politicized. Now it's so random and scattered that we need a way to rebuild these roots and some sort of common language to explain things. So I feel like Jacobin, and Don is an excellent staff writer for, for Jacobin, in addition to our work for The Guardian, uh, and even this book, we're often more prone to being criticized in other parts of the left, and I think that's a good thing, it's because we're comprehensible, in that we'll lay out what we think about an issue in language that people can understand, you could agree or disagree, whereas if you're just citing and bringing in these random bits of like, 
material from academia or mixing in Foucault quotes or whatever, then people, it's never clear what the thesis is, you know? Um, I mean, you talked a little bit about how you kind of get involved in the left in the US. I mean, when you were kind of young, both reading Trotsky in your library when you were in school and then going to university and starting Jacobin, obviously, if prior, well, after about 2015 in the UK, a lot of people would join Labour, they'd join their trade unions, but obviously you had a big difference in the US because obviously the Democratic Party doesn't function in the same way Labour does, but was also a lot more right-wing, and then now, I suppose, you've got a lot more DSA chapters, so can you talk a bit about that and the difference? Yeah, I think the key difference is, in the US, it seems like we have a two-party system, because we also have first-past-the-post and other things, but we, in fact, have a no-party system in that uh, I became a registered member of the Democratic Party on my 18th birthday when I got my driver's license. And um, I became a registered Democrat because I lived in a state, New York, where uh, all the competitive elections were in the primaries. And in the general election, there'd be a Democrat running and often not even Republican running. But it was a closed primary, meaning you had to be a member of the Democratic Party to vote in that primary. So if you wanted to vote meaningfully, you had to be a member of the Democratic Party. Now, I've since spent the last 11 years attacking the Democratic Party and its leadership. The Democratic Party can't expel me because the Democratic Party has never expelled anyone because it's not a membership party. The Democratic Party doesn't even have its own elections. The elections for primaries to decide who's the candidate of the Democratic Party is convened by the state. So it's completely different than the Labor Party. No one has ever paid dues to the Democratic Party or the Republican Party or whatever else. So it's imagine a party system that's emerged in the absence of a working class movement. So in the UK, or well, UK is actually an intriguing thing, but in most countries in Europe, the first mass membership parties were always working class parties. So in Germany, the SPD invented mass you know, mm -hmm. politics. Um, we associate today like torchlit marches and these other things with like the far right and Nazis in particular, but these were invented by the SWP. The spectacles of rallies and things like that, like actually keeping dues, membership, discipline. Like this came from the working class movement. Why? Because we needed numbers to get things accomplished. Whereas serving interest, if you're running a party to serve the interests of capital, you don't really need, need that countervailing force or whatever. So yeah, I am, um, been a Democratic voter, so our strategy in the US isn't to take over the Democratic Party. Like, I think if you're in the UK, you should be Labor Party members, you should be active in your CLPs, you should be trying to transform the Labor Party. But what we do in the US instead is we run on Democratic Party ballot lines, but as open socialists. Yeah. So AOC, Bernie, like nobody in the US associates them with the Democratic Party, they associate them with just Democratic Socialists and whatever else. So that's what we do by virtue of just having this weird party system. Imagine the UK if um, you know, it was just the Lib Dems and the Tories and you had to find a way to work, but then the Lib Dems and the Tories collude to make it impossible to form another ballot line. Like, that's living in the, the US and you know, as a result we have to try to make do with an R equivalent of the, the Lib Dems. So how do the DSA fit in then? Can you talk a bit about the rise of them in the last five, ten, five years? Yeah, so the DSA was an organization that survived. There were the, the stragglers, the we survivors. Point out that I, 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 oh, so Democratic Socialists, right? Yeah, we keep yeah we keep using acronyms. So mm -hmm. AOC is that yeah. So AOC, everybody knows AOC. Alexandra Ocasio Cortez. She's a representative in, in Queens and parts of the Bronx, and she's at this point next to Bernie, the most prominent Democratic Socialist. Actually, as a result of U.S. cultural imperialism, probably the world. Um, and no offense to our friend Jeremy Corbyn, but, um, and um, yeah, with DSA, the Democratic Socialists of America, was the largest socialist organization in the US, but that was kind of like, as William F. Buckley, a famous conservative comment, commentator, used to say about Michael Harrington, the founder of DSA, it was like being the tallest building in Topeka, Kansas, which, <laughs> I don't know, Topeka, Kansas is a very small city. I don't know, it's like being the tallest building in Leeds or something. So I, I don't know England. I think that makes sense. Um, so um, the organization was basically nothing. 
And this broader climate of the return of politics since 2010 really, really helped it. So in 2010 and 2011, we had the Wisconsin uprising, which was this big anti-austerity movement in Wisconsin, which was in the upper Midwest of the United States. Uh, then after that, we had the Occupy movement. Uh, then we had Black Lives Matter. We had just the return of politics to the streets in an extremely depoliticized country. That was, really, that was really something. But the most important thing that happened was that Bernie Sanders ran against Hillary Clinton. And Hillary Clinton was the anointed candidate of the Democratic Party. She was, it was just assumed that, that she would succeed um, uh, Barack, uh, Barack Obama. No real serious candidate wanted to run against him. Uh, then all of a sudden, this junior senator that nobody knew about decided to run against her. And Bernie Sanders, just by accident of history, was politicized in the um, Young People's Socialist League of the late 1950s and early 1960s. He was um, like active in civil rights and trade union movement. He's a man who knows and quotes, like at times, Tony Benn, which like, in the UK context isn't that unusual. Like, I'm sure there's some centrist labor MPs who maybe sold militant for a couple of weeks in the <laughs> 1980s, or who like, you know, who, who had some sort of like, we're in the Young Communist League, like a lot of, some, some Jack, new labor. Jack Straw used to be head of NUS and he was practically communist and now he's a massive war criminal. Exactly, exactly. <laughs> I mean, that has happened, you know, in the UK it's common. In the US it's just a complete anomaly. But he had this discipline of just saying the same thing over and over again, of saying like, he used to say it's millionaires that are stealing the wealth of this country. And, and it's not the fault of minorities and, and immigrants. Like he had this quotes verbatim from the 1970s he was still giving in the, the you know, 2016. And if you look at his vocabulary, tr uh, Trump used a more complex vocabulary than, than Bernie Sanders. Because on the American left, we learned how to just say the same things over and over again because the things we were saying were true. Like you're working hard, it's not your fault and you deserve more, you deserve decent health care, you deserve jobs, you deserve a, a nice place to live that you could afford. And that truth is at the core of left-wing politics, and that's what we were able to tap into. And a lot of people joined DSA. We went from 5,000 or 7,000 to 13,000 um, people during the Sanders campaign, maybe 15,000 people during the Sanders campaign. And then afterwards, we right after Trump got elected, we ballooned to around 40,000, 50,000. A lot of these people are just Googling what's democratic socialism, but some of that I think is a result of both Jackman and DSA making discernible a politics to the left of liberalism. So imagine if you lived in a country where Nick Clegg in circa 2010 when everyone liked him, uh, or at least like you know, some people liked him, um, <laughs> was considered the left wing of politics. He was considered the far left of politics. So what we were able to do in the US was start to make discernible something further uh, further left, and people have kind of randomly joined it. But because DSA is very young, social media savvy, and also because it's disproportionately middle class in the sense that DSA members are either on their way in or out of the middle class. So I have a bunch of friends who are DSA members, and they're the only members of very large families that went to college, and that's where they got politicized, and that's like a huge chunk of DSA. Uh, then there's other DSA members who are like. Uh, doing three jobs, juggling different forms of like wage work in the service industry where their mothers and fathers are lawyers and accountants. So they're kind of, that's you know, either downwardly mobile or upwardly mobile. Um, because of that early demographic of DSA, I feel like we um, had these, we were social media savvy. We get very positive press coverage in the way the momentum in the British left doesn't get, I think, for whatever reason, you know, I think there's lots of complex reasons why, but it's largely a media event. I think the mass phenomenon is, in, is Bernie, and we need to make DSA from this media event into a real phenomenon. That means getting rooted into working class uh, life and politics and activity wherever we, we can, and we've had some success doing that. Mm. Um, I mean, how has the second Sanders run gone? It seems that the lineup of different kind of um, nominees for Democratic uh, nomination seems very different this time. Obviously, last time it was like Hillary and then Bernie, whereas now you've got Warren, who is almost word for word ape in a lot of Bernie's, Bernie's policies, mm -hmm. and then like you know Kamala Harris seems to have dropped to the face of the earth. You've got Pete. 
but that judge is mm -hmm. just awful. That's good. It, it's you actually nailed it. I, the pronunciation. <laughs> I just say Mayor Pete. I try to avoid it. Yeah. Um, it seems like this time, even though there's a broader range of candidates, it's actually it's very much focused on Bernie and Elizabeth Warren as actually, you know, moving there. So do you think that shows a big shift in politics or? I once refused to pronounce his name, and someone sent me an angry email saying, he's Maltese, you're being racist. I'm like, what the fuck, you know, who are these people? Um, um, I don't know much about Malta, but I assume it's, you know, not super oppressed. Um, but, uh, so, I, I mean, I think one interesting thing that's happening, one thing we didn't expect was that in the last election, it was Bernie versus everyone else. Bernie was this anti-establishment, different candidate. But then Bernie enters the race, and there's like five, six Democrats that are basically pretending to be Bernie. And then all of a sudden, Biden comes in and says, like, I'm your old, lecherous uncle, and I don't care about any of this stuff. And, you know, and so in other words, like Biden's become the differentiating, like I'm running a different campaign. And that's been bad for us. But I think what's really been bad is the fact that, you know, People really wanted change, but more importantly, people vote rationally. And they really know that Trump is bad, and Trump has the risk of really hurting their lives and their friends and family's lives. And in that era, do you really want to take another leap? Like, oh, we leap to the right, and it's been a disaster. Do we want to leap to the left? No, people want comfort and security and the familiar. And especially among older Democrats, over 60, black and white, not actually Latino, but black and white, older Democrats over the age of 60, 65, are overwhelmingly going for Joe Biden. So in particular, what they like about Joe Biden is that he's familiar. Their Democratic stalwarts are going to vote for Democrats. But more importantly, Democratic voters generally like all the candidates. So they have, so whereas like we in the media sphere and whatever else, we have very strong opinions about these different candidates. They're like, ah, they're all good. They're not Trump. You know? <laughs> And then they're going to vote for who has the perceptions of electability. Mm. So I think we need to beat Biden by saying, this guy isn't electable. He doesn't stand for anything. Trump's going to make mincemeats out of him. And then like, you know, beyond that, we'll, we'll have to figure <laughs> out what. But right now, Sanders is a distant second. He's within striking distance. The polls at this point don't really matter because it's so far out. Uh, there's going to be um, debates coming. Uh, I think there's a real path for uh, Sanders to win for one. Uh, some of these elections are, most of these elections are proportional once you hit a certain threshold. Yeah. So I think, in other words, we can imagine a scenario where there's already an agreement in place um, between Warren and Sanders. They're not going to attack each other. So you could imagine a scenario where Biden's ahead with like 35, 40% of the delegates. Sanders is behind with 25, 30 Warren has like 15%, but Warren and Sanders, like Warren delegates move to Sanders. Like there's, there's certain scenarios out where we can imagine where that happens, but I think more importantly, Biden will not perform as well in the debates as either Warren or Sanders. I think there is a very important differences between the two. Um, I'm trying to think of the difference in the UK context. I would say that, you know, Warren is kind of Ed Miliband, and you know, Biden is like even even worse version of David Miliband, uh, if that's if that's possible. But uh, but in the U.S. context, you know, Ed Miliband is like freaking Vladimir Lenin because you know of how bad our <laughs> politics um, is. So she's definitely a preferable candidate. Um, but her goal is to change the rules of the game so capitalism is more fair. I think. Uh, Sanders' goal is to like, you know, get everyone riled up so we can do a smash and grab and steal some money from the register. And I think that's like, a far better approach for left-wing politics in the long run. Um, I mean, I think you've got, obviously, we have our own problems in like, the UK with trying to get left-wing politics through the media and late party, et cetera. But obviously, you have the added problem with um, a lot of the kind of historical hang-ups that older Americans have with communism and socialism, et cetera. Um, I mean, how much time do you have to spend kind of debunking that in like DSA and wider left movements? But also, do you think it's like, what's the response been to, you know, from older Americans about the fact that younger Americans, like millennials in our generation, um, are so enamored with the idea of socialism? Like, what's been the response of older people? So I think that um, it's really just Not dependent. Not just columnists. <laughs> yeah, yeah, I think, I think it's really dependent. I, I think socialism is, is such a vague, floating thing in the United States. The right 
has attacked every mild centrist program of reform, not even center left, but centrist program of reform as socialism to the point that it's lost its meaning. Mm -hmm. um, I think most people are generally favorable of the idea of socialism, but then they'll add a caveat saying, but you also need capitalism. You know what I mean? Like, I think that it's, it's gotten to the point of uh, almost meaninglessness um, in, in the way it's, it's used and employed. I don't think that anti-communism is a particular hang-up. And you know, what my response to people is just simply, we've been the victims of police persecution as communists and socialists in the United States, not the perpetrators of it. We've fought for civil rights. We've fought for freedom of speech. We fought for um, the union movement and all these other democratic things. Um, and also, we reject forms of authoritarianism. But if you're concerned about your life being run by a handful of corporate, uh, a handful of state bureaucrats, like in a Stalinist system, you should also be concerned about your life being run by a handful of corporate bureaucrats. Mm -hmm. And the fact that there are literally a few hundred people who make decisions in closed rooms that impact the lives of millions. And we have no say over what decisions they, they make. They appropriate and hoard socially created wealth, and they decide what to do with it. I mean, we're living in a, in a different way, in a form of, of, of authoritarianism. But any dose of democracy that we do have, and we do enjoy and we should respect and cherish and, and try to protect, was one against the wishes of the, the ruling class. They would much rather, maybe not fascism, but at the very least, they would love us living in like Singapore or something like that, some sort of authoritarian form of, of, of capitalism. So we need to, I think, on the left, abandon terms like bourgeois democracy mm -hmm. and start talking about democratic rights and the way in which they were, they were won and the working class movements that united people of all races to, to win these, these, these rights. But, yeah, I don't actually encounter it that much, that kind of, I encounter like the libertarian, like capitalism is more effective or whatnot. I don't encounter the Cold War, you're an agent of a foreign power thing, you know, I don't really um, get. If anything, the people pushing this narrative in the US are the, like, many liberals who think that Trump is like, you know, in cahoots with Russia. If, if a thousand social Everything media Russian accounts can make a difference, you know, me and Don afterwards can make <laughs> so socialism come to the U.S. because we could make a bunch of bot accounts and, you know, like, you know, start some WhatsApp groups and, and, and you know, it doesn't, doesn't matter, you know? Mm. Um, I mean, talking about kind of making socialism, like, more accessible for people who uh, wouldn't traditionally have come to it, can you talk a bit about the kind of long analogy that you opened the book with? Oh, yes, so, so, the, so this is actually a chapter that I need to reread because I, I kind of submitted it. I wrote it all in one go, uh, and I submitted it to the editors who only changed a, a, like one or two things to it. And I'm, uh, so basically, most books about socialism are, in fact, they claim they're making the case for socialism, but they're really making the case against capitalism. And it's very easy to compare a, uh, you know, real existing system with all its contradictions and failures with the system that just exists in our heads. So with the first chapter, what I tried to do was create like a second person narrative that'd be like funny or at least people can connect to that tries to like, explain the Marxist theory of exploitation. So in other words, like why the capitalist workplace is unjust, why unions can make things better, why social democracy, so taking the logic of unions, but extending it to like, we're gonna control the state and we're gonna run parties in the interest of working people can make things even better, <laughs> but ultimately why unions and social democracy have limits and why we need to transcend and go beyond them. Uh, so in other words, what a transition from a, a social democracy to socialism would look like. But I do through a second person narrative in which the main character is a worker at John Bon Jovi's you know, dad's pasta shop um, making uh, curry, uh, you know, flavored pasta sauce. And this is actually a real thing. John Bon Jovi's dad owns a brand of pasta sauce, and it's curry-flavored pasta sauce. I actually bought it as research for this book. And it was very poor as pasta sauce used to, like, you know, you're boiling pasta and you add pasta sauce to it. It was okay as, like, you know, you're marinating something or whatever, you know, so it was like, I used it to marinate. No, I'm never going to let you cook for me. Um, <laughs> no, it's fine. I can cook. I can cook. Um, and I normally boil things till they stop moving. You know, that's, that's my the my marinate default. them in curry yeah, pasta Yeah, the marinate sauce. them in curry pasta sauce. Um, and then, you know, so it was meant to be, you know, a kind of an accessible, engaging starting point. But more importantly, people today 
really don't like the system that they're living in, but they don't think there's an alternative to it. And history would tell them there isn't really an alternative to it. So we either reconcile ourselves with a flawed reality or we're, we're just lost in a lot of you know, adulthood. A lot of life is reconciling yourself with, with authority. Um, but what I wanted to do was actually remind people that one, capitalism is unjust, which people don't need reminding of, but two, there's an alternative to it. And then the final third of the book, what that's meant to do is to create the bridge between one and two. So in other words, that's one thing socialists have been able to do that anarchists and other parts of the workers' movement or broader like socialist movement haven't been able to do, which is um, actually create that bridge between our outrage of the world as it is and our vision of a world without forms of exploitation and oppression. But actually, how do we get from here to there? And I think that's through the day-to-day -day struggle for reform. So in the United States, right now our main struggle, or one of the main struggles, is for universal health care, for Medicare for all, which would have created you know, a single-payer uh, health care system in the United States. But if you can't put that on the table, if you can't win that, how are you going to put worker ownership and the means of production you know, on the table? Great. Um, do you want to talk a bit about the kind of differences that you see between kind of socialist project mm -hmm. in Britain and then the one in America? Well, I think for one thing, there's already a, a traditionally working class party in, in uh, Britain. Uh, so Lenin actually derided the Labour Party as a bourgeois working class, you know, a bourgeois workers' party. Traditionally, Labour has been to the right, on the, the far right of European social democracy. Um, so like, Labourism at its peak was never um, even what, what um, you had in Sweden, Norway, and, and other, other countries that had center-left parties. But you have the structure and the shell there that you could actually build real politics and you re-engage working people um, in. So we don't have that here. We don't have the same political tradition. Um, we don't have the same kind of knowledge and background and whatnot. We have a much bigger gap. We had that for a bit in the 30s and 40s, and people often, older members of the left, will talk about being red diaper babies and going to socialist summer camp and how they're... Uh, you know, fathers were longshoremen, and their mothers were active, you know, forming a union. And, you know, they, they, they have these stories, but it, there was this gap and this disconnect. And I think you were on the verge of having the gap and the disconnect, but now there's, there's some renewed politicization. I would say that what Sanders and the movement in the U.S. have been able to do very well is tap into anti-establishment sentiment and actually be insurgents. So, like, we did canvassing in places like uh, New Hampshire, you know, so states that, that are kind of, you know, reddish. So sometimes they go for the Republican Party in <coughs> presidential elections. And we could knock on doors and we could be with the most left-wing candidate, but people would be like, oh, you know, either I like Trump or I like Sanders. You know, in other words, like, people would say that, you know, I'm angry at the status quo and I like you, but I really don't like the, the people in the center, center left. Uh, you know, I really don't like the people in the, center, in the center right. And you could even talk to them about democratic socialism, at the very least about social democratic demands. People are like, yeah, of course I believe there should be a jobs guarantee. Anyone willing to work, you know, should be able to, should be guaranteed a job. You know, that kind of stuff would be common, uh, common sense, and it is common sense. So Sanders was winning self-described moderates, because in the U.S., self-described moderates or independents were people who didn't like the left, because they started the left with liberals. They didn't like liberals, and they don't like right-wingers, they don't like conservatives, because uh, they didn't like the rock war, or whatever. They, 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 for whatever reason, they didn't like left or right in their mind. So they're in the middle, so they like these insurgent candidates, and like Sanders, okay. And we're losing it a little bit now, because Sanders become too associated, or more associated with the Democratic Party, um, and there's a whole host of other kind of complications that go with that there. But I, I would imagine that in the UK, there's, it's been harder for this existing kind of left to actually reach some of these, um, some of these uh, voters. But it should be common sense. Like, like we don't need any complex theory to understand uh, what other people are dealing with. Like, I've never been um, homeless, like, luckily, but I can understand what it's like to be homeless because I like having a home and I can imagine that not being able to have a home or have a safe place to sleep at night 
would, would suck. You know, I, I, I never been a black American. I imagine the being like, even more so the victim of, of, of uh, discrimination and wage, wage discrimination, all, whatever, whatever else, police violence in, in greater proportions would be, would be bad. And I'm sure a lot of white Americans can relate to it too, because you're, if you're a white American, you're 26 times more likely to be killed by the police than if you were a white person in, in Germany. So, you know, like, I can, like, these commonalities of our politics, I think, are there, and we can explain it in common sense terms. And the best way I can describe what our politics should be is a, a line, I won't try to say the, the German, but a line from the, uh, yeah, um, the United uh, Front song um, in Germany. And it goes like, roughly like, um, you know, we want no bosses over us and no servants underfoot. And I think that's the goal of, of socialism, but that's also the goal of most people. They want freedom, they want autonomy, but they don't want freedom and autonomy to exploit and abuse others. They just want to be like left alone in security and comfort to look after the people they care about. And I think in the UK and in portions of, of the center left in the, the US, we get caught up into like certain diversions and wars where we, we write off huge segments of the population as being intrinsically racist or backwards and whatnot. And it's posturing as left politics, but what in class, it, it, what it actually is is class politics, but it's, it's you know, middle class hubris. I mean, um, can you talk a bit more about class politics? I mean, obviously, um, you know, you talked a lot about unions, et cetera. Um, I guess there's been some resurgence of that in some of the discussion in the UK, but I mean, how does it kind of relate to the US? I mean, I guess you have the American dream and all that sort of thing, but I mean, is there, are people talking more about class and how it functions mm -hmm. in America now? So yeah, I think in the last generation, we've seen a convergence where like Americans now don't have this vision of class mobility, because mm -hmm. in fact, they've realized that they're living in societies that are kind of in, decline or the very least for them, you know, it's in, it's in decline. So I think you've had a convergence in, in many, many ways with perceptions of class actually reaching, um, you know, reality. But, you know, I, I think that there's no particular difference there. I think the main thing is just we're so weak and fragmented that we have extremely low union density. It's around um, uh, 10, 11 percent overall even much less in the private sector. So our last bastions of, of strength on the left is in these public sector um, unions. And people don't really know what to do next, and they don't know how to fight back. So often, I think on the left, we think that people need to be told what their interests are and how to fight back for their interests. But in fact, people don't fight back, not because they're dumb, because they're smart. If you're in a country, with, uh, you'll say you're in a region of the United States with high local unemployment, and you uh, aren't a member of a union, and there's no visible left in your, your area, and your boss comes to you and says, you need to take, uh, you know, we're gonna cut your hours by a third. Now, a leftist might say, oh, well, if the proletariat was conforming to your view as a Marxist of the, the world, you know, there'd be a strike or something, no. People are rational, so if they can't fight back and win, if collective action isn't a viable option, they're going to keep their head down. They're going to say, sure, I understand. They're going to go to their friends and family for support. They might start driving Uber or Lyft part-time to fill up the, the gap. You know, they're acting rationally. Mm -hmm. And I think that's, that's the main thing we need to learn, both in Britain and in the US, which is if you want to be a good organizer, that you shouldn't be telling people what to think or what to do. You should be asking questions because people know more about their situation than you know about, you know, theirs. Um, very briefly, can I ask you about Mike Gravel and the and the purpose that Mike Gravel serves in the U.S. politics? Um, while also explaining briefly who he is, for people don't know. Yeah, he was just eccentric. I'm obsessed with him. Yeah, he's an eccentric <laughs> Alaska former Alaska senator, who's. Twitter account and campaign seems to have been taken over by Jacobin readers, many of whom are teenagers, because I've met with them several right, they're times. They're still in school, aren't they? Yeah, I mean, like, I was like, oh, yeah, you could come by and meet with me. You know, I'm at this bar. They're like, oh, I'm under 21. We can't do that. <laughs> and in the US, they're strict. You know, you get, you get, you know, you get carded when you, when you come in. Um, so uh, yeah, I mean, what's the purpose? I think the goal is to get him on the campaign stage, and he could push a few demands, a few things like that. 
but you know, all his supporters are basically Bernie supporters that for some reason decided to use Gravel. Bernie's stance on foreign policy was good, it's becoming better. It's like, you know, Corbyn's always been good on these, 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 um, these issues, but uh, Sanders has been defending his defense of the Sandinistas, which oddly is controversial in the US. Like, are you for right-wing paramilitary death squads or are you for a popular bass? based like peasant group. Like somehow this became mildly controversial on the the you know the US um, but you know he's you know he's he's I think quite quite good in most of these um, most of these things but but yeah so I can't really explain it but they're like a bunch of rogue Sanders supporters such Ackman readers that, that have seem to be manipulated, no, I'm just kidding, <laughs> seem, seem to have like found a conduit for their politics through the campaign of a older former senator who I'm sure approves of all their actions. Dragging the yeah, yeah. window. Um, I mean, just so I've got two more questions and one open to the floor. Um, can we talk a bit about the media? Because obviously we have huge problems with the media in Britain um, and how kind of centrist dominated they are. Whereas the media in the US just seems out of control at times. I mean, the, a lot of the New York Times columnists are just like Brett Stevens a while, but you know, there was that big Sydney Sin, uh, Edmer hit job on Bernie recently where the fact that he um, asked, asked her if she understood you know, what, what went on with, with the Contras, et cetera, like it just seemed out of control. So, I mean, what, what is the big, I mean, how can socialists and anybody on the left mm. kind of deal with that kind of media ecosystem? Yeah. So I think actually the print media in the U.S. is better than print media in the U.K. Mm. I think part of it is because, like, in other words, there's this baseline kind of centrist cult of objectivity, which means at the very least they try to verify and fact check and defend themselves on some like level of professional credibility, and they like at least pretend to be confrontational with the government. Whereas like here, there just seems to be a much more incestual relationship and a much more kind of partisan, like a hackishness when it comes to like, oh yeah, we just made up a story, but you know, like that's the way you know the, like things go. Um, it's not necessarily a, a good or a bad thing. I think it's a sign of how depoliticized the the U.S. is. But the print media seems to, I think, be a terrain where we just need to make sure that we have our, um, you know, we're able to spin and counter and, and figure out how to operate in that environment. And I mean, there's plenty of like very, like the, the sub-editors and copy-editors at, at these major institutions, a lot of them are on the left. They're not Bernie Sanders supporters and whatever else. So I think there, there is kind of space for us to get our message, um, our message out, though obviously we need to create parallel venues. I'm not talking about Jackman so much as the things that Jackman should hopefully see in the future, which is we need mass accessible um, media outlets that are mainstream but are also rooted in a understanding of the world that I think is not just our propaganda or ideology but like that's objective which is that like the primary cleavage in the world is between those who have to bow their heads and work for other people for cash and those who own shit and get to determine the terms in which other people are bowing their heads and working for them. Um, and I, I think that knowledge uh, needs to be there in media, but I think the print media in the U.S. is different. Our broadcast media is actually insane. Like we have, like MSNBC has become the all-day Russia Gate impeachment network, uh, which I think is like on tactical and other grounds uh, the wrong approach to to take to get rid of Trump. I think we need to defeat him in an election and and counter his democratic mandate with an even more expansive democratic mandate. He didn't win the popular vote, you know, and he's he's been able to get very little done. But, but that's how we defeat him. Mm. Um, uh, then, you know, the broadcast media in the US is just very, very narrow. I've recently been able to, to get on in my two minute, um, you know, sound bites, but that's, you know, just because of the Sanders campaign providing a brief opening for, for people and them not being able to find anyone, you know, anyone else. But the, um, it seems like in the UK it might be the reverse. Like you probably know better, but maybe your print media is worse, but your broadcast media is better in general. Yeah, but. Much of a muchness. Um, <laughs> to close before we go to questions, um, what are you most worried about in for the future of the left mm -hmm. in Britain, America, and across Europe and everywhere else, really? And then to close on a positive note, what are you excited and positive about? 
Well, I would say that, well, I'll do it in the opposite way. I think you should no? try this Okay, fine. Way. Okay. Well, okay. I think that, um, that uh, right now the right has always benefited from narratives of scarcity, saying there's not enough to go around. Uh, immigrants and all these other people coming in are taking something from you. Life is a zero-sum game. The economy is a zero-sum game. Everything's a competition. Well, if your neighbor is getting ahead, you're, you're going to be falling back. Mm -hmm. If minorities are getting ahead, uh, you, your status is going down. This kind of narrative. And we've been able to rebut it, largely because it's a false narrative. Working class people are all oppressed. Some of us are more oppressed than others. But we can create a common program in which we all advance. And of course, some of us will advance more than others in that common program. But that's been the basis of left-wing politics. And we don't have to convince, by the way, a majority of workers that this is true. We convince 60%. And we cobble together a majority. And we are able to win power in unions and win power in the state. And we're able to legislate reforms. And we're able to do all this. This is the basis of left-wing politics. But what happens when there's actual scarcity? What happens when there's already a resurgent and dangerous Hindu nationalist right in a place like India? What happens when there's 100 million Bangladeshis going into the plains of central India uh, from, um, from Bangladesh? And instead, the right's false narrative, which seems to be actually winning in India, that uh, you know, Muslims and others are the enemy and are taking something from you, becomes a real narrative of people seeking refuge and there actually being kind of intense competitions and whatnot. The positive thing is, I think if you freeze frame right now, most people actually believe in the things we believe in. They believe at the very least in our minimum program, you know, in a social democratic program of change. It might be harder to convince people the relevance of something like um, democratic control of production, of greater socialization, and so on. But at the very least, the social democratic agenda, the agenda that was embodied in Corbyn's 2017 uh, platform is supported by, by many, many people. The key is getting some of those people to actually turn out and, and vote and be mobilized and be engaged. But, and we, I think we are gaining ground in many spheres. So if you were to freeze the current ecological situation and whatnot, uh, I think over time, over 10, 15, 20 years, we would end up, end up winning. The, the, the question is, as things change, as uh, the climate situation, global south especially changes, as people have to move in, and we have to defend the, the right of people to, to, to move and seek refuge, um, you know, what happens then? Like, are, isn't the right going to be in the, the better terrain if this becomes a question of bunker socialism connected with an internationalist program of allowing people to relocate, embracing our sisters and brothers that are, are leaving kind of unimaginable hardship? versus kind of bunker fascism, which is like you and your neighbors are fine, but like outsiders are, are out. Uh, the thing that ultimately gives me solace is the fact that socialism isn't just an idea. Socialism is rooted not in a handful of intellectuals and journalists who keep alive the flame. It's rooted in an objective contradiction. The fact that socially created wealth is privately expropriated the fact that the vast majority do not get the fruits of their labor. It's rooted, in other words, in capitalism and in class society. And as long as we live in a class society, there will be a resistance to class society. So it doesn't mean that socialism is inevitably going to win. It means that the resistance is going to be there. The difficulty that we have is to take micro acts of resistance and actually cobble it together and make collective action at a macro level uh, viable and sustainable. And that's something we have to we have to figure out. But our main audience and constituency, our agent of change, isn't going to be like-minded, smart, well-meaning people. It's going to be masses of people who have in their, their interest the need for more security, the need for stable jobs, the need for material help to take care of their families. So in other words, we have an agent. It is a working class. It still exists. And it's not just you know, a handful of people cloistered around universities and you know, whatever, whatever else. Great. Um, we'll ask the audience questions now. We have a roving mic. And I will take an equal number of questions from men and women. And if it's not a question, I will stop you and force you <laughs> to make it a question. 
Uh, can you put hands up first? Uh, I'll take them in rounds of three. So you've got one person there, uh, the person in the orange jumper, and uh, the person in front of you there, and then we'll go to the next round. Yeah. Hi, thank you. Uh, in the recent European elections, the biggest gains made by parties on the left were made by green parties, whose politics are basically liberal. Uh, so my question is, why do you think that was, and how, as socialists, do we make sure that it's socialists who are winning support on the left, not Greens and Liberals? Should I take three? Yeah. Yeah, yeah. yeah. three. Yeah. The, the, the person in the orange jumper? So I, I... Um, what I thought well, was really... <laughs> Try the one behind. Oh, yeah. Hello. Hey. <laughs> what I thought was really interesting about your book and what I wasn't expecting is that you focus a lot on the history of the socialist yeah. movement. Um, how far do you think that is useful? Um, I think in a way, obviously I do think it's useful, but I think in some respects it makes the movement inaccessible. Um, if you have to know the history of a movement, I think that can be quite daunting for some yeah. people. So, <laughs> in essence, my question is, mm -hmm. how useful do you think the history of the socialist Wait, movement is yeah. and the present socialist movement? Great. Can you pass it to the guy in the red T-shirt? Thank you. Thank, yeah. uh, <clears throat> thanks. Um, I'm a DSA Chicago okay. member, and I want to ask about um, um, the election results. Mm -hmm. you know, a lot of people are excited about the uh, mm -hmm. um, Chicago yeah. Board of Aldermen election. I was concerned because you know the uh, mayoral candidate who was backed by Labor mm -hmm. got you know annihilated even in districts where open socialists won mm -hmm. and you know the south and west sides the poor parts of the city mm -hmm. you know the only place where a socialist could win with you know their most natural working class mm -hmm. allies were you know the guy that got indicted for corruption right mm -hmm. so you know how i don't want to get in trouble with adolf reed but like how do we you know reclaim and mm -hmm. reinforce this black radical tradition mm -hmm. and related to that how do we like explain and or launder socialism into the discourse. Right, yeah. yeah. No, I think those are all great, great no. questions. I think, yeah, <laughs> um, it's surprising for a left wing, no, I'm just kidding. Uh, on the first question, why did the Greens and Lib Dems, or I guess, did do well in this election? Because it was a European, uh, you know, election. So obviously it's gonna be about, you know, Brexit. It's gonna be about this one issue. And it's a low turnout election, so it's gonna get people who are riled up about the issue. So half the people are riled up and they want, you know, a harder Brexit, so they want to, you know, like, uh, leave, party. so they vote for the Brexit party, and half the people are riled up, so they vote for, you know, Lib Dems or Greens. But I think the, the core of the labor, labor's approach, the labor leadership approach, was correct, um, which was to kind of split the difference and to hold, do a holding pattern until a general election in which you could actually make campaign on other issues. Now it seems like there's been a pivot towards a second referendum, towards trying to solicit these Green and, and Lib Dem voters, which I think is absolutely wrong. These voters will have to come back if there's a general election called. And it's, it's you know, let's say in September, and it's, it's like a, it's someone, like a hard uh, Brexiter uh, running uh, the country who's holding a general election to actually get a majority for some sort of very hard Brexit. Like these people are going to have to vote for for a soft Brexit Labour Party instead, and I think it was playing out correctly. And there was media hysteria and, and hype from people who really want to see the Labour left destroyed. And the way that they will destroy the Labour left isn't by supporting another Blairite. It'll be by supporting uh, a Blairite pretending to be a member of the soft left, you know, so-called. Um, when, you know, so I think, I think in other words, like, I, I'm not concerned about the, uh, the results. I am concerned about the response, the waffling and weakness that it showed, and the way in which that'll further undermine labor uh, support. Um, and on the second question about the history, I think it's important to recognize the, well, what I've tried to do in the book was to present a illustrated history of different parts of the socialist tradition, because I didn't want to do the thing where you just pretend like if it's uh, not good and I don't like it, then it's not socialism. But if it is good, then it is socialism. So often I'm in the US, I'm in conversations with libertarians. And you can be talking with libertarians about how bad the world is and be like, people have medical debt, and they're alienated, they're stressed, whatever. And they can be like, yeah, yeah, I completely agree with you. I'll be like, why are you a libertarian? Well, that's not capitalism, that's crony capitalism. 
And I think socialists do that a lot. Oh, that's not you know, socialism, that's social democracy. That's not socialism, that's Stalinism or whatever else. We have a common ancestor. The movement went in many different directions. I think there's lessons to be drawn from the, from the experience of, of quite brutal autocratic dictatorships in Russia and China and also of, of social democracy. And I think that many of the same tensions and contradictions that any future Labor Party or any future Sanders government would face have already been faced by, in particular, social democrats in other countries. So, in other words, uh, my most controversial view, probably, which I've yet to disclose in public, is that I think that if Gordon Brown was born 30 years earlier, he would have been the most left-wing leader of the Labor Party in history, at least until Bernie Sanders. Think about his, his history, his background, the way he speaks, he could still, you know, like, you know, I, I, I was still summing up some of that old, like, labor, um, sm, you know, small L labor, um, you know, rhetoric when he was campaigning for the, you know, the British Empire in Scotland a few years ago, whatever else. You know, he still, he still has some of it. Um, so is it just that Gordon Brown and Schroeder and all these different European Social Democrats were just made of weaker stuff than the previous generations? No, there was a real contradiction and crisis in social democracy in the 70s. And it was rooted in, in part, a crisis in profitability and a crisis in like, the, the external situation changing. Uh, increased international competition, so the effects of globalization, the OPEC uh, uh, you know, shock. So what capital did at that point was to say, the old way isn't working. Workers, bolstered by the welfare state, are making extremely militant wage demands, and in some countries, are actually questioning not just their wages and conditions, but they're starting to question uh, industrial democracy, the right of management to manage. They're starting to ask for greater socialization. In Sweden, they even pushed for something called the Minder Plan, which would have slowly socialized production of major firms in, in, in Sweden. So, so their, their response was, we don't know how we're going to restore profitability. We need weaker unions. We need less regulation. That's how we're going to restore profitability. So the left said, well, we have a solution, which is we're going to take away this power of blackmail that you have. We're going to take away your ability to withhold investment. And we're going to say, we're going to find ways to socialize production or expand social democracy to the point that it leaps from social democracy to something like democratic socialism. That was their plan. They failed where it was attempted. It wasn't attempted in many places. The plan of the center was just to close their eyes and pretend like nothing was happening. The plan of the right of social democracy, which in Britain later expressed itself in third way, social democracy was, we're going to weaken unions and deregulate and create a condition in which your profitability can be restored and growth can be restored. But with that restored growth, we're going to tax that growth, we're going to take some of your profits, and we're going to maintain key elements of our welfare state. And in many measures, it works. It's the reason why you still have an NHS and other, and other stuff. But it didn't work at a political level, which is they were undermining their own social base. So what's the point of a worker voting for one party that's going to give them austerity by a 1,000 blows, whereas another party will give them austerity by one swift kind of you know, kick? Um, like, you know, it makes sense to just stay at home, and that's what most voters who, who defected from the Labor Party ended up doing. They didn't start voting for the far right, they didn't switch to the Tories, they just stopped, you know, turning out in the same levels they were turning out um, before. But I think this, all these contradictions and all these things we learn from, from history, and I think we're going to replay many of these things over and over again, because capitalism at its core hasn't changed. These dilemmas of trying to administer a capital state in the interest of working people hasn't changed, so we need to learn the lessons. And I think, particularly what's happening in uh, McDonald's office, at least at their, at their best, a lot of these plans and proposals are meant to try to renovate social democracy, to make it relevant, to make it strong again. In Chicago, actually six members of a 50-person uh, city council are now socialists. Many of them are, uh, about half of them have been longtime DSA members. Uh, we're close with many of them, um, with, with kind of our, our milieu around, around uh, Jacobin. It is really you know, exciting what's happening there. At the same time, I guess what you're saying is, why are so many of these, the most consistent demographic that we have for center-left politics in the US, for social democratic politics, is black Americans. Black Americans want 
a more expansive welfare state. They believe in jobs guarantee. They believe in all these other things we want to support. So why do they keep voting for uh, people on the center right of the Democratic Party, even though they would never vote for the center or the right of, as far as the Republican Party or whatever else? I think it goes to what I was saying before, which is the logic of, of collective action, which is that workers and capital are dependent on each other, but it's an asymmetrical dependency. You need your grocery money more than your boss needs your particular contrib contribution to labor. That's why we need to organize collectively in order to, to provide avenues for collective action. So in the case of black Americans in particular, that also applies to like most, most working class groups in the US, you vote for the lesser evil, you vote for who you're perceived as being most electable because you have the most to stand if the Republican right is in power. And you also vote for who's familiar. You know, you, you're voting less on the basis of a checklist of a program so much as saying, oh, this person seems familiar. You know, my turnout is maybe mobilized by a local community group or a church or whatever. Like, the left doesn't have those same roots. So I think the goal is to figure out how to do our own version of machine politics to sink deeper roots. And in DSA, what I've found is that there's different reactions to the fact that DSA is a largely white middle class um, group. Um, and one reaction is to say, well, we should just sit around and talk about how white middle class we are, right? Which is the most white middle class response to being white middle class as possible. The other reaction is, let's take part in what struggles we can to plant deeper roots. So in Brooklyn, there's a lot of work going on, the Crown Heights Tenants Union. In Washington, D.C., there's a lot of tenant union work. So you try to get embedded in the working class as you are. The black radical tradition today, I think, the people who would say, like, there's some sort of other tradition we should tap into as DSA or whatnot, like, this tradition is, in the, that way, is, like, largely kept alive by, like, college-educated, like, the black portions of the black middle class and the black professional class keeps alive those traditions. I don't mean that in a bad way, so much as saying that, like, I think the way you reach most working class black people is the way you reach most working class Latino people and white people, it, like, which is, like people want the same things, they want security, they want also like assurances you can actually beat the Republican that you're gonna put them up against in a general election and all these other other things. So we need to become credible, better rooted, and we need to find a way to do like our own version of machine politics. Like we need to like, actually be able to mobilize people in mass. Like we want people to vote for democratic socialists, not just because they believe in democratic socialism, but because they're from a district that votes for democratic socialists. Because they're, they're in an industry in which the union supports democratic socialists. Like That kind of machine politics, the Democratic Party in Chicago and Philadelphia, at least, still does really well, um, often for really bad, for bad reasons and bad ways. We need to do it, too. In the UK, you still have glimmers of it. You still have some little last bastions of laborism. My deep fear here is that over the next 10, 15 years, the Labor Party will just become the, uh, a voting block for a combination of like politicized, particularly um, you know, uh, people from marginalized groups in peripheral areas and ideologically committed progressives in you know, cities, which is not working class politics and it won't actually build a sustainable coalition for, for change. And it seems like the Labor Party is on that route very rapidly given the at least early indications that we've seen as a response to this, uh, you know, to the election and the controversy around, around Brexit and so on. Okay, I want two women this time. Uh, can you, hands right up so I can actually see, sorry. Uh, can I get the woman in the denim jacket here, um, person behind her, and then another denim jacket? Is it you? Yeah, sunglasses on the head, yeah. Hi, um, thanks for your talk. I. Something that I've seen a lot like on the internet recently um, is this like phrase that I think comes from like second wave, second wave feminism, which is the personal is political. And like I find that hard to reconcile with like the like basis of socialism, which is like collective action and collective movements. But but I think that like in an age of like internet and social media, like that that phrase gets used a lot in like self-care discourse and like political discourse, like everything gets individualized. So I was wondering like how to reconcile mm -hmm. that. Um, yeah, thank you. And first, yeah. 
Uh, how you doing? DSA Miami. Um, <laughs> oh, yeah. Uh, I've been here for five years. So, uh, first question, real quick. How do, do you think the left and socialist message should be more hopeful and not, we're all screwed and you need to do something about it? And then the second part of the question is, in the event of a democratic administration and a Senate in 2020, how do we ensure we don't fall into the trap the Obama administration did when he had a supermajority for two years and he could have passed a public option and they took it off the table? So what does the left do in the event that we do have a democratic administration in 2020 to ensure that they pass social left policy? Yeah, okay, uh, hi. Uh, I have actually two questions. One is like practical one and the other theoretical, so I hope I, ha I can have that. Um, so the first one is about the situation in Middle East Europe. I don't know if you have looked into that, but I'm myself actually a member of like left-wing uh, party called Together in Poland. Mm -hmm. And we are after like the elections which weren't so great for us. Uh, and like for years we've been struggling with not only getting the like socialist democratic message to the people, but also with the baggage of ZSRR and like all of what's what's 20th century generally uh, generally brought to to the region. So so the question is if you have any uh, idea how can we get because like. I know that intellectuals can talk a lot about stuff and we have some ideas and we want to get that to the streets and to the people, but people actually want to vote what's comfortable for them at the moment. So how can we, uh, yeah, if you have some idea, how can we get like the message, the proper one to them, not the liberal one? And the second question is, uh, I have a feeling that we are like in general on the earth, uh, on the verge of something and that it will fall either on the like far left or far right, if you could elaborate on that, because I haven't finished your book yet. Right. Uh, your question, your answer to me has been much shorter this time. Sure, sure, much shorter. Um, personal is political. I think that the personal is political in the sense that like the very common sense thing of like people shouldn't be dicks, people shouldn't be, like, you know, people should just be nice if they're in the same space. So, like, leftist spaces should be places where people have honest, frank discussions. Um, and we're, we're facilitating, you know, people to be, to be heard and be able to participate in a process, but which that participation also have rules, which allows the participation of other people. And, like, things like that, I think, are, are, are common sense and are, is an important part of embedding it in our, in our practice. Um, but yeah, obviously there's been a, a wider turn towards thinking about being left as like, I want to do good, therefore I'm on the left and I identify as being a, a, a leftist, which is just not a super politicized way to, to think about, about, about things. And we don't necessarily want people who are coming to the left as atomized individuals. And the goal is to obviously create a situation where, um, you know, see it like people are coming to the left because socialists are really useful in their strike action or socialists had helped set up this community campaign that won them something and they connected with some of the organizers and they started showing up at meetings and you need to create this broader culture where politicization doesn't happen in ones and twos, it happens in, in mass. Um, for, as far as your question, I think we could only really expect things to happen if Sanders or to lesser extent Warren is in power we have to hope that they use the bully pulpit of the presidency to actually encourage action on the streets, unionization, and other things. And also, we take advantage of the fact that the imperial presidency has grown, right? There's a lot that can be done, actually, just by executive action um, alone. But we need to use the environment and the mandate of the presidency to actually push for other stuff. And also, DSA members and others, we need to have the mentality of we are going to be the extra parliamentary force um, uh, from this administration. We, not, might, we might not be hostile or attacking the administration, but it's a bourgeois state, and running a state has certain built-in constraints, and our goal is to help widen the scope of, of action. So actually, a great, you know, the, probably the best work of Marxist state theory is like Ralph Miliband, um, who used the, the term relative autonomy to describe um, kind of state uh, actors. So, at the last instance, a capital state is dependent on profits accrued by private firms. So 
you can't actually run a program that makes capital give demands to the point that it's unprofitable. Otherwise, there'll be no more businesses and you no more way to finance uh, the state. But there is scope for, for action and reforms within that. Um, so we need to have Sanders tell people, you need to join a union, you need to be engaged, you need to be in these different community groups, you need to use the power of the state to actually serve our, our purposes. But we need to have the mentality of um, we are not in power. We have an ally that's in office, but we are, we are on the, the outside. I think that's the, the tricky dilemma to balance. Uh, on the last question, yeah, I don't have many insights on, on the left in continental Europe and why the, why the um, uh, kind of slide has continued, other than just by thinking that, one, if the debate becomes polarized just about Europe and European integration, and the mentality of the left is to say that the populist right is this incipient fascist force that's about to destroy everything that we like in society, and the primary goal needs to be to defeat this incipient fascist force, and you do that by, in some various form or another, supporting a form of Europeanism, then why wouldn't people support a Green Party or support the more seriously, unequivocally pro-European parties? Why, what's, what's the added value in supporting a radical left um, uh, party? So we need to find a way to make the debate about social issues. Because it might be that we could accomplish, like our goal, like, I am against, as you might have intuited, I am against European integration. I'm against the European Union. I'm not, not against the European Union in the abstract. You know, I don't believe in nation state. I believe that we should all like, live under the red flag and sing the internationality in Esperanto. But I am for a certain program that I think the European Union makes it difficult to accomplish the program that I'm for. So if I'm going to make the case, I'm not going to try to pivot around, uh, we should just talk about Europe right now. I'm going to try to talk about the things that we want to accomplish. It's very difficult to accomplish. The EU makes it somewhat more difficult, but particularly the Eurozone for countries that are in the Eurozone makes it very difficult to accomplish. So if you're in Portugal, if you're in Greece, and this has been the stance of Blanco in Portugal, we're going to lead on our, our five social priorities, and we're going to say, if necessary, we will leave the Eurozone to pursue these five priorities. They did well in the last election, because they're actually campaigning on the, the issues. I think in a lot of other places, it's become a debate, almost a political debate, that's often even about like multiculturalism and things like that. So the, so the left can say, oh, we like diversity, because immigrants make our like, shitty cuisine taste better and shit like that. You know? like, well, and then on the other side, people will be like, oh, well, we like stability and we like community and this change is happening too fast. And it becomes polarized around, around these, these, um, these issues. And that's not the way you actually can, you know, can win people over. You know? Whereas if you say that like, we have a certain stance where we believe in defending the welfare state, we believe in providing jobs and security and prosperity for everyone, you know, the goal is to take people who are concerned about things like immigration and not to necessarily change their consciousness, so that'd be great, but to make immigra immigration the number three or number four concern. So they're going to say, well, I believe in defending the NHS. I believe in this like, jobs program. I believe in this other things that labor's promising. And you know, the commie bastards are really bad on immigration, but I'm going to vote for them anyway, because it's not my number three or number four concern. I think that's where you win over people. And obviously, when it comes to political cadre, people who are active in the party, active in CLPs or whatnot, we should demand a higher level of internationalism and whatever else. But that needs to be our, our approach. Whereas the European left, I don't know anything about Poland, but like in, in, in general, has become just you know, a very detached cosmopolitan kind of uh, you know, thing.